Today's reading comes from Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took from him a basket made of burrushes and dabbed them with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done would, would we be done to him. Now a daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river. While, her young, while the young woman walked beside the river, she saw a basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman to take a look. When she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call, call you a nurse from the Hebrew woman to nurse the child for you? And the Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, because, she said, I drew him out of the water. This is God's word. Thanks, brother. You may be seated, family. Let me go ahead and uh, pray for us. Pray for God's grace over our time. By his please, Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can enjoy you. Lord, thank you that we can have our little ones up there in our hearts. As we are singing, uh, we pray uh, first that our, man, our little kids, our, our youth would know you, love you, and walk with you. And that these would be great times for them to be grafting themselves in the truth of Christ. And for ourselves, Lord, to see all that we have in you, Lord. And, and that during this time, Holy Spirit, would you guide us as we're in Exodus chapter 2 to see what does it mean a little more to understand your character and who you are, understand who we are in your world, and to believe here uh, motivated uh, to trust you, Jesus. Holy Spirit, we pray that the gospel will be clear today, that you uh, will be exalted. Holy Spirit, would you bring glory to Christ by using me? Use my words right now, Lord. Use, allow, yeah, just allow your, Holy, your, your words to go forth. Allow people to, uh, to see them as good news. So would you be gracious in that? In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you need Bibles, pastor is passing them out. You can go ahead and raise your hand. We are studying, going through the book of Exodus. Uh, we study books of the Bible in our local body. So please go ahead. If you have uh, <clears throat> missed a few, uh, missed the first chapter, you can go ahead and get that online as well. I'm going to jump right in. We have a lot to talk about. And so uh, go ahead and grab your Bible, open it up. We want you to be just navigating through the scriptures. If you need a Bible for your home, let us know as well. We would love to supply that for you. 
all right? Because we want us to, uh, although we have it on the screen, <clears throat> we don't want to cultivate laziness, but we really uh, do that so that you can just have another avenue of being able to look at the scriptures, but learning how to just dive in and ask questions on the text and uh, really be healthy uh, theologians as you continue to walk with the Lord. So that's our heart behind it. Right. Have you ever thought about what, you know, as I walk with the Lord, like what, what, what does it take for me to trust Christ, right? I mean, I, you know, I was thinking this morning, you know, even as uh, I had one of my, my, my children, have you ever had this happen? Like, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll ask them, I'll tell them I'm going to do something for them, right? And then um, two minutes later, they'll run and say, hey, can you do this for me? So like for us, we love, we love sports and uh, sometimes we'll watch ESPN in the morning and, and uh, one of my children is like, hey, you know, I told him that, you know, a few of the scores from last night and say, hey, man, you want to watch some highlights? He's like, yeah, that'd be sweet. So then uh, I say, well, let me finish some things first and then we'll watch the highlights. Well, sure enough, a minute later, two minutes later, two minutes later, one of my children come. Hey, daddy, are you ready? Watch the highlights? No. I said, uh, I'll let you know when, when I'm ready. Right. And so then... A couple of minutes later, I'm working, comes back in again. Are you ready? Can you watch the highlights? You ready? Right. What makes, what makes them do that? There's excitement, right? But what, else, what, makes, what, makes it, what makes us continue to, uh, to ask and to, and to kind of check and see, well, is this really going to happen? What do, you, what do you think that's really saying? Patient, lack of patience. Lack of patience. Also, like, is, are we going to really watch this? Right? Now, now, for us, as broken people, sometimes we're not trusted because we're not trustworthy. Right? So I can give to my, my, my kids that maybe they're saying, man, last time you said we was going to watch ESPN in the morning. You know what I'm saying? You got caught up and you forgot. And so because of, because of your testimony... Right, I'm asking again. Right, right. We can identify with that, but but now let's talk about a holy God. When He never fails you, when every promise He has provided and said He would do, He has done. What makes us have that same kind of posture to the Lord? Right, or maybe maybe I'm the only one. Do you find yourself every once in a while going, Lord, are we really going to do this? Is this really going to happen? Right? Lord, can I really trust you? Right? Well, we're in Exodus. We've seen the people of God in Genesis. God basically, uh, basically culminates, grabs, begins to nurture the people of God. Uh, he grows them up. He, extend, he, he he's faithful with his promise to make them this crazy generation of people, uh, multi generations of people. He goes to Exodus. Their so their number is so high you can't basically count them. Uh, they, they experience great tragedy in a sense of persecution. Persecution kind of is like the stimulus of them actually now beginning this framework of what God is going to do when he's going to deliver his people. But yet they're still being persecuted. And then we enter into this basically right in the midst of that story, right in the midst of that persecution in Exodus chapter 2. To see how is God going to do this? What is it going to look like for God to, to grab his people? 
Check out what happens here. Um, very, very cool, simple passage here. I want to walk through, and then I want to helpfully provide you to see some typology, some, some storylines that actually points to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Stars, he says, now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. So the, the author wants to provide an inclusio. He, he shows us what's going on with the Israelites before we look at before chapter two. We see this persecution. We're right in the midst of the persecution. We're right in the midst of the persecution. The author wants you to know that something is happening very important here. And he provides a sense of a couple of things. He lets you know that the kid was born from the tribe of Benjamin, right? Who his dad was a Levite. I'm sorry. His dad was a Levite and his mom was a Levite. And so you want to ask yourself as a, as a Bible student, as you're reading the Bible, is why does the author see that as important to know, right? Well, it seems very important, right? Because think about Moses' future calling. And so this points again to God's sovereignty is that the Lord is already showing you that before he is called, he's already in the right line of his calling, so his calling can't be denied, right? Is that before the, the Levites even are given the priesthood, He's basically in that line in full compliance of the law of God that, by the way, he hasn't given yet. So he's in full compliance of a law he hasn't given yet so that when he does give it, he'll be in compliance, praise God, which actually will be revealed in his lifetime. And we see right now he is a full Levite, right, that his mom and dad are Levite. And the reason why that's important is we obviously understand that the, the Levites are individuals who for the people of Israel are to bridge that gap between a holy God and his people, right? And so that's what they do. They're the spiritual leaders. They're the shepherds of God's people to really point them to the Lord and to make sure that they're experiencing that holiness and being the people of God that they're called to be. Well, Moses in this time is born in that line, which we now know is for that purpose, but they didn't. It says, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son, right? When she saw that he was a fine child, verse 2, she hid him for three months, right? This is great. So she gives birth to a son, love what he does, love what the author does. The author shows you that he's from this, this Levitical line, and then he does, he says a, a very simple phrase that I want you to miss, miss, miss here, gave birth to a son here. It's used uh, 16 times in the Pentateuch. What's very interesting, that's the first five books of the Bible, what's very interesting is the first 15 times it's used is in Genesis. And then it's used once in Exodus, right here, and then it's never used again. Well, I want to propose that one of the main reasons that the author is doing that is because each time it's used, it's talking of an individual who was born in the nation of Israel and there to do or be something important in moving the Israelites, the people of Israel, to be the people of Israel and moving them to the promises that God has called them to. And so Moses being the last guy, as it were, the last person who actually is described as an important birth in this narrative is saying he's the last guy who's the one who will actually be the one leading them to what we call the promised land at this point that he's preserving he's been preserving and preparing a nation from Genesis to Exodus and now basically that's culminating as we got this last guy who's the final guy who's going to actually take them out of Exodus um, take them out of Egypt into what you call the promised land I want you to notice something here too as you continue to read notice how much it talks about the lady Okay, you talk, you know, verse 2, talking about her becoming pregnant and all these other things. You're going to see that throughout. I want you to notice that. Notice that there's not a lot of mention of the dad, right? Um, 
I want to propose uh, that, you know, it's, we know that the dad Amram, which we, we find out in Hebrews eleven twenty three, is around. So he's not like a deadbeat. But I want to propose this just very quickly. The reason why that's probably happening is because practically, remember, they're enslaved. Okay. And so the dad probably can't be around much during the time of, of some of the things that, that we're going to see happen with Moses. I bring that up to say you get to see that this story is actually, again, in history. All right? You have a dad who's out working hard as a slave. She's pregnant, so she's probably not working as hard. And basically, she's going to give birth to the son. And actually, because he doesn't have time to actually provide for his children, she has to actually come up with a plan on how she's going to save the son. So I think the author just kind of gives her her due because of the reality of the, uh, the situation. And it says here in the end of verse 2 that she hid the child uh, for three months. So you have this child who's born a Levite, uh, who we eventually know is going to be the Levitical priesthood. This child now is continually uh, growing up. She's feeding this child. We see this child also, uh, she says, you know, gave birth to a son. So we know that there's a line involved. And yet that line is culminated in this, in this child. The author wants you to know. And then we see it says she hid him for three months. Well, how did she hide him for three months? And then why just three months? Right? You have to ask yourself, why just three months? Well, I want to propose again, very practical. Um, you're thinking of the concept of her being able to, to feed him, breastfeed him for a time where he doesn't make much noise. There's a, there's a little period where you continue to feed the child and the child is sleeping a lot. And so probably the, the child didn't make a ton of noise. And so she was able to keep the child hidden. But then it became a point where your child begins to scream a lot, where just breastfeeding alone won't, won't, won't work. And so she had to figure out another avenue in order to keep the child safe. And so we don't know if it was three months on the dot. I think that's just kind of a, a loose time frame. But it's giving you a picture of this lady who's kind of got this child. She knows the edict from Pharaoh that, that, that Pharaoh wants this child dead. She's trying to figure out in real time, what do I do? She's feeding the child, keeping him quiet, feeding him, keeping him quiet. All of a sudden, the child's waking up at weird times. The child is starting to cry. She's thinking, we got to do something here. It's trying to get our minds wrapped around what's really going on in history here. So you're a mom. We've got a lot of ladies in here. Imagine that. This is your child. You know that if your child is found out, your child will be killed. So this is what's happening. And it says in verse 3, But when she could, not, could hide him no longer, which I'm proposing because of him getting bigger and, and just the, the realities of what happens when that happens, she got a, a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Um, the word here, I love this. Uh, it should, should kind of remind you. You should go, I've seen this whole thing before. Like, what, what's going on here, right? It's the same kind of concept that's used, actually. The word is actually the same word it used for the ark. And so now, now, you, now again, you're, you're, the, you're the reader. You're, you're, you're an Israelite, and you're... You're, you're walking, you're hearing that, that should evoke something, right? Obviously, that should evoke uh, Noah, right? And, that, and that, that God is trying to show us through authors of what God is doing with his people, even with Moses. And right, so he uses this word that, man, that, that God was gracious to allow her to think of, man, well, why don't I build something that we'll call an ark, which I'm even proposing, I'm wondering if she maybe even by God's grace thought of it because of her history, it's just interesting she would use some of the same stuff that, that, that Noah used during that time. So I'm wondering, she's like, well, what do I do? What do I do? Can I build something? Okay, well, Noah built something. Well, what did he build? I can't build a big old ark for a little baby. So what am I going to do? I'm, I built a little ark, as it were. 
And then her, I don't know for sure, but I'm proposing that she didn't know all the ramifications and, and, and typologies and foreshadowings that she was making when she was doing this. What I mean by those words foreshadowing that the things that she's doing right now is going to be reminding the Israelites that they're God's people and God's been taking care of them the whole time. And as you're hearing this and as you're thinking about this story that's going forward, be thinking about, well, what does that mean for me as God's people? Why is God telling me this? Right. Well, Moses wanted the reader to know he wanted to connect those stories and he wants you to see that that God protected Noah. Right. And the animals and his family by a great ark. Right. In the same way, he's protecting Moses, as it were, by a small ark. That's the reality. They have very, very good similarities. If you look at the chart here, I mean, they're both actually, he's going to grow up and be a deliverer like Noah, right? He's going to grow up and be a rescuer, as it were, like Noah. They're both called by God to be doing these things. They're leading, as it were, animals uh, through danger. They're leading animals and people to a new location, as it were, right? And these people would actually become the dominant, like establishing God's basically unfolding plan as he's continually ushering in his plan of redemption through his people. So I don't think it's any mistake that God is trying to show us how he uses the narrative of history to continue to tell and retell and retell his story to his people so that we have trust. The reason why you see the same stories and the reason why I stand up here every other week and must have the same application is because we forget the application. And God wants to say, trust me, have faith in me. Look what I've done through history. Look why, look how I've done it again and again and through the same ways and use the same language and done all these things so that you will see this stuff is on purpose. I want you to trust And so you look at that, what the author's trying to evoke here is that you still have, and we still have today. You have even, even, even Moses being raised up to do what? To take the people, the people, the remnant, that is not everybody, but in all these different meta-narratives, in all these different narratives, even today, there's all the people that say, oh yeah, I love Jesus, whatever. And then there's the remnant. There's us who love the Lord. God has birthed us anew in the spirit. And God has taken Moses and he's delivering, as it were, the people of God, the remnant, to that land. So he uses that word bitumen and asphalt to evoke those kind of emotions. For people to remember their history and go, man, I remember that. God did that. So maybe he did that to Moses. Wait, holla. Check this out. So then when he gets bigger and he says, come with me. They hear this story and then they start getting grumble. They, they grumble and what you doing? I can't believe you did this, Moses. Are you really God's man and all this stuff, God? Moses is like, hold up. Look at this. Remember what God did? He's trying to remind you that by God's grace, he sent me to help us get out of here. This was not just to, this was to affirm, as it were, Moses' call so that when people will question his call. Look what it says here. So the baby gets older. What do you do? You're the mom. You got this baby. Talk about courage. Look at this. Then she placed the child right in the, in the ark. And I love the fact. So the ark wasn't like, you know, we get those pictures. And what's the pictures you get when you watch TV and stuff and, and cartoons? You know, I'm a big cartoon guy because I got five kids. And um, you got the baby in a nice little cool basket, a nice little pillow, right? And then the baby goes off on the river and floats somewhere. 
right? Isn't that what you see sometimes in some of the movies? And, and, and that's, not, that's not what the story is telling us, right? So this is, a, this, is a, this is a nasty little thing here, and it's enclosed, right? Because you think about it, if your baby's hiding out, the reason why she didn't have the baby in her house is because she would get in trouble because probably the baby was making noise. And so what they did was she said, well, what I'll do is um, the Nile, that's where they want to throw the babies at anyway. I'm going to put them in the reeds of the Nile, but I'm going to surround the baby and protect it with this, this bitumen asphalt makeup with all this stuff. And I'm going to enclose the baby in it so that when the baby does make noise, you won't hear the baby as much probably. And the baby probably didn't float off somewhere because they would have to get to the baby to feed the baby again, Right. So it wasn't like every day they kind of went through wading through the river trying to find a baby. They probably put the baby, when you think of reeds, you know, a lot of bushy kind of stuff. They probably put the baby in that area where it was in the water, but it was in all that bushy stuff where it wouldn't go anywhere. Okay? So she does that. She sets the baby there. She's scared. Oh, man, you know, wondering what's going to happen. Be quiet. And sets the baby there. And what's, what's funny is the irony here, right? You know the irony? You see the irony? Is the irony is that basically, yeah, she's obeying Pharaoh. She threw the baby, as it were, in the Nile, but she protected the baby while the baby's in the Nile. And I'm sure she used the Genesis story to help with this. So, so and think practically. So she put the baby in there, and, and the guys are doing sweeps. Because you know the reason why they knew how to kill the babies, right? They had to go and do sweeps. I don't know if you know about sweeps. If you, if you grew up doing stuff you weren't supposed to do, you probably know about sweeps. But um, which sadly, I know about sweeps. So sweeps, all right, is every once in a while, I know in, where I grew up, um, you, you know, basically they would, the cops would have like sort of a condensed time where they would go to an area and try to basically, as it were, stop crime. Okay? And so like in our area, they would just come and, and, and check out um, cats like me and my friends and actually do, do some illegal things, but that's not part of the story, to try to see if you were being illegal, right? And so they would, and they would have these intense times. And then we had people who knew about when the sweeps would happen. So when the sweeps would happen, you would try to take all the drug paraphernalia off of you. You would try not to have big wads of cash on you. Because if you had any of that, and they was like, well, yo, you got like $800 in your pocket. Where you work at, you know? Then that'd be a problem. So... So my point is that sweeps is when you really, when you kind of a concentrated effort to say, we got to make sure whatever we've, we've, we've put in place as an edict that we're following through. So I'm sure that these, these guards, every once in a while, did sweeps through the houses. When they say, let me see your house. You're Nikias who's pregnant. What's going on? Right. And I'm wondering, and that's when she probably put the baby out, knowing that maybe they do sweeps it in the morning time or at night at a certain time. They figured it out and tried to hide the baby. Verse 4. Check this out. His sister, which we believe is Miriam, who was about older, stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. So the baby's out in the water. So then the mom, mom and dad says, listen, okay, um, I, I've had the baby, but they still want me to work. So I'm sure she was working sometimes too as a mom, okay? Because she didn't get, you know, sick leave and paternity leave and all that stuff. She was a slave, Okay? And the dad was still working. So they're thinking, like, what do we do in the meantime? We have a baby. So Miriam, we're believing that the theologians think between <clears throat> 6 and 12 years old, his sister, is kind of, she's not old enough where they're like, hey, shouldn't you be out working all day? But she's old enough to be able to wander around and kind of like see what's going on. And so they say, hey, we want you just to kind of be lollygagging around and making sure that, she's, that, that the baby's cool. Okay? So now imagine that you got your six to twelve year old daughter 
hanging out being the watch. Right? And look at this. It says, um, it says, Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw, opened it, by the way, that's why I was enclosed. Right? She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. And this is one of the Hebrew, uh, this is one of the Hebrews babies, she said, right? So now you, you're going through the story. You know, everything's cool, but it's still kind of dangerous. And all of a sudden, man, there's this huge twist right here in verse 5 and 6, right? You got a baby that's actually found by an Egyptian. <laughs> and not just an Egyptian, but Egyptian royalty. The edict came from the royalty. Oh, my goodness. What's going to happen? You're the Jew. You're, you're reading the story. You're hearing the story, you know? But imagine you being in the story. Imagine you being a six-year-old girl and you see, oh my goodness, is that, are those the princesses coming down the hill right now? Right near my bro? What do I do? What do I do? What would you do? You're six. You're seven years old. Would you run? I thought, man, maybe I would have ran. I don't know what to do. Like, what do I do? Do I go tell, man, go tell my mom? But she, she, what, what can she do? I don't know. What would you have done? So they come down, you're checking it out, you're watching. You're acting like you don't really know the baby, right? So you, but, you, but you do know the baby. How does a six to seven year old get the wherewithal to think like that? Right? Would you have thought like that at 39? Would you have thought like that at 25 and 27? Okay, I'm just going to act like I don't know why I'm here. I'm just hanging out. Oh, just walking back and forth in the mud. Like, would you have thought that? Would you have thought that? Let me say something. I'm going to say it probably 18 more times. Notice in the text so far, you haven't heard the mention of God. But notice in the text so far, you've seen so much of the provision of God. Notice what God is doing as he has the author writing. He's trying to show you something. That even when you think God isn't in the mess, he is absolutely in the mess. He's trying to show you, you don't have to hear Yahweh, Lord, Jesus, Jesus, Holy Spirit, Lord, Jesus, Yahweh, to know that God is sovereignly doing his work for his glory in your life. That's why the author does that. To show you, look what God did here. Look what God did in verse 2. Look what God did in verse 3. Look what God did in verse 4. But there's no mention of Yahweh. Oh, yeah, there is. He's in every word. He's in every word in your life, too. And in my life. Praise the Lord. What would you do? So here it is. They come down. She sees a baby. But by God's grace, again, she doesn't go, Hebrew baby, kill this thing. She didn't do that. She's catechized and raised by her father, her mom. And, it's, it's, you know, this isn't, these, they had tons of princesses. So there's mad indoctrination going on here. And yet, God gave the grace to allow this girl to not be affirming her father's edict. What? To have compassion. Wait a minute. To have enough compassion. Let's see what happens. Now, I love this. So then verse 7 says, which by the way, I'm pretty sure she knew it was a Hebrew baby, physical appearance, types of clothes. I'm sure they weren't G'd up like Egyptians. You know what I'm saying? You know, Egyptians weren't hiding baby boys these days. 
So she knew it was a probably Hebrew boy. Verse 7. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Man, look. So I, when I read this, when I was reading the scriptures, this, this has brought tears to my eyes because I just thought of the sovereignty of God here to allow a six, you know, she's six, eight, nine, seven, a, a kid. I don't know where she's at. You know what I'm saying? Because I want to be only faithful. You know, I don't know where she's at. I know she's not a teenager, but she's like, like she's a little bigger than six, you know, to allow a kid to have enough wherewithal to see the royal people bathing. She has servants around, guards around. And they're looking at the baby, and she's sitting there. She has enough maturity and poise to just chill and be like, I'm cool. All right, Lord, what are we going to do with this? And just be walking and chilling and to have them not even suspect that she knew the baby at all. Imagine, this isn't history, y'all. This, is, this person is, at, at, is no older than my oldest son, Connor and Joel. And I'm imagining Connor and Joe having the wherewithal. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. Where the, the, the girl was so, had such poise and was like, she listened and thought, well, when can I find a God avenue where I can jump in and provide some insight to save this baby? And she's listening and the lady said, oh, she's crying. Oh, we got some emotion. Okay, that's what's up. Okay, so she's emotional. So she got a heart. She has some compassion. She sees the Hebrew baby. What do I do? She's looking at it. She's kind of sad. And she says, oh, oh. Man, it seems like kind of sad. Well, we can, we can, we can dry those tears. You know what I'm saying? We can, we can do this. And she says, wait a minute. Actually, I know you, you, you're tired of hearing the baby cry. You know what helps that? Breastfeeding. We can do this. And you know you can't breastfeed because you, you weren't pregnant. But you know, I, you know what? Can I go get the Hebrew, a Hebrew to help? Help with this process? Are you kidding? Are you kidding? Guys. I wouldn't have thought of that. I wouldn't have thought of that. I'd have been so scared. One wrong move, the baby's dead and she's dead. One wrong comment. And she does all this and they still don't recognize that she's related. Six years old. Praise the Lord. She saw the compassion. Oh, cute baby. She listened to all she thinks the baby cute. That's what's up. <laughs> Think of the insight. She must have also knew Egyptian. Because she's conversating with the princess. The guts. Can you imagine the princess like, who is this to? Who? Who's this talking to me? <laughs> she says. Go, verse, verse 8. Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went, wait a minute, look, come on, y'all. All right, let's talk about God. So the girl says yes. She go, cool. She goes, get the mama. You, 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 hear, you hear what God trying to show us? You see what he's trying to show us here? You see what he's trying to show you and me today? Who's in control? Who's in control? Amen. Look at this. Gets the girl's mother now. Now, now you the mom. You at the crib. She comes up, mom. Yeah, what's up? What, what? Everything cool? Well, actually, they found they found they found the baby. 
What happens to you, mom? You hear that? Your heart drops. Did it kill him already? We don't know how she brought the story up. But as soon as you heard the Egyptians found a baby, your heart drops. Is my baby dead? Is it captured? Oh, what happened? You want to maybe you want to blame the daughter? What did you do? Think of all the things that could have happened there. Think of the story. You're the mom. You've worked hard and you said, Lord, would you protect this baby? And all of a sudden, just like that, it changes. And then she says, well, you know what? Maybe she said, man, not, mom, the Egyptian princess got the baby. Right? But, but check it out. But then she says, she probably says, hey, but listen. They, they need, they need, they, they, she, she was crying and I, I said, we can get a Hebrew woman. And so I want you to go and you can feed the baby. Can you imagine? What? Now, now don't get me wrong. She's probably still broken because she knows at some level, the relationship she wanted to have with her kid has changed forever. Do you understand that? At, at some level, she's lost her child. Right there. She knows it. So now it's like, okay, well, what do we do? Like, so did my child stay alive, but not with me? These are the, can you imagine? In a split, these are moments, guys. She didn't, have, she, he, she didn't say, go get a Hebrew woman and have her pray about it for a week and then let me know. Go get a Hebrew woman, feed this baby. They probably had moments to think about what are we going to do? But that's where you see God through this, guys. The author wants you to see the shrewdness of this girl here. The wisdom of this girl. Had to be difficult for Miriam. For her mom to hear what she had to say. But man, I, am, I love the fact that in that horrible scenario, God turns that, that dismal information to hope and salvation. Because she's like, but your baby not dead yet. Guess what? You get to go feed your baby. Now check out what God does here. Check out what God does. Verse 9, y'all ready? He says, Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. Look at God. Amen, right? So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Look at what God does there. God not only shows her, I'm, I'm going to protect the baby, but then I'm going to let you nurse your baby, which, by the way, in, in ancient times, you nurse three to four years. So you're going to be in a relationship with your baby for three or four years, providing the nutrients for your baby, and I'm going to get you paid. <laughs> Praise the Lord, right? You're about to make some cheese. So, like, get paid. Unbelievable. And, I, and, I'm, and, I, and I'm pretty convinced that at verse 9 and 10, God wanted to make sure that you and I didn't miss his provision for his people. What do you do with that? So at the end, you know, it says, I mean, the relationship has changed. She eventually, the Bible shows that she adopts Moses, which means that she takes the baby into her own home eventually. Right? Which the lady loses the relationship, calls the baby Moses an Egyptian name, which means to draw out in the sense of like people name people like us. We don't name people for any reason many times these days, but 
they thought about the circumstance they were in usually or some different kind of words they were dealing with at the time. And they named the baby based on those things. So to draw out, Moses gets named, which I propose is, is again, irony. As he was drawn out of the river, what he will be doing, he'll be drawing the people of Israel out of Egypt. God is showing you he's working this thing out. What do you do with this? Guys, let me just give you a couple things real quick and we'll go home, okay? You're the Israelite walking, you're, you're hearing these stories. What is God trying to do? I want to tell you it's plain and simple. He is trying to exhort, to call, to motivate the, the, these, the, the Hebrew people to faith and trust in Yahweh is what he's doing, right? Is that the omission, again, throughout the whole text uh, is on purpose so that he can continue to kind of, it's almost like we talk about the muscle of prayer, how we're trying to build our muscle when we pray. It's like right now what God is doing by omitting his name and continually showing you his provision, he's trying to exercise and build the muscle of faith for the Israelites so that they can see God is in all of this, so they can build and understand and have faith. So that when they have to trust him, they will trust him, which is right now because their kids are dying. And it will be more so when they're asked to leave a place that they've been comfortable with for many years. To trust them. And then what is he doing for us now, guys? Why does God give us this beautiful narrative of the exhortation of faith? He's retelling a beautiful story. You see the story he's retelling? He's not only, it's, it's, it's called, I've mentioned, you know, recapitulation. He's retelling the story, right, of what God is doing in the world and how God has many foreshadowings so that we, that you see everything in the scriptures, verse by verse, is always pointing to Christ. So that you and I will see that it is Christ alone who is worthy of our worship and praise. And there's nothing you and I have done, but it's only by God's grace that he's given us Jesus. That's why he does that. That's why you look at verse 1. You see this, this boy who's born to a line of a priest. You know, and you think, oh, that's cool. And, and, he, and he builds the gap, you know, a kind of like a, an initial gap for the people of God and Yahweh. But that gap can't last. It's not long-lasting. A man can't keep that gap. But you guess who can continue to bridge that gap and make it to the point where there is no bridge? He has just made it a full relationship. Jesus Christ, he fulfills that, right? He takes the gap. And the initial thing that Moses does by giving us the law and like keeping us doing stuff. And Jesus says, no, no, no. I'm going to down a cross and, and, and be the sacrificial lamb so we have no more use of any of that. You come to me. He bridges the gap. The Holy God of Israel. Jesus completes the gap where there would never, ever, ever be a gap again. You know, you think of the concept of, of Moses trying to show that he's, that, he's that, that final figure forming the nation of Israel. Well, that's just typology. That's just foreshadowing because Jesus becomes the final figure forming all of gospel humanity. All of humans who love Jesus, basically all of new creation is under Jesus. There will be a no, no other person. And see, that's the thing about cults. You know, Sarah and I was just uh, serving, talking to uh, Mormons uh, this past week. Sarah, we, they came over. And I was amazed at how, at, at, at the, the concept of how works. When you think of a cult, when people put their focus on what they can do and what people can do, then you've really missed it, right? Because they will say Jesus is a God, but he's not the God. 
and that we can all eventually become God. And then we're talking through this. We're talking through, well, why do you believe that? And, and then tell me, tell me, they thought it was arrogant to have confidence in your salvation. I said, well, actually, the Christian doesn't have confidence in our salvation. We have confidence in Jesus' ability to save us. That's my confidence. I don't stand before God going, yeah, I prayed to prayer, Jesus. I led a Bible study. I know I'm going to heaven. Praise the Lord. No, I don't do that. No one of us. We go before a holy God. We say, there's absolutely nothing I can offer you, holy God. But if you would look to your right hand and see that I've given my life to your son, that my only hope is in the salvific work of Christ. So Jesus, Jesus is the final figure. He's declaring redemption for everyone who believes in him. You think about this. I mean, I just love the whole concept of, of the Nile and the, and the small ark. And I just love the concept of you have the Nile signifying death. And you throw these babies and you kill these babies. And actually, you see Moses actually goes into the Nile, the place where babies are supposed to have death. And in essence, he gets not only life, but then he gets exalted as ruler. You see that? There's nothing short of God trying to retell the story that's going to happen with his son, Jesus. That as it were, Satan thought he had won when Jesus went into, as it were, death. But actually in him going to death, it actually provided life for him and every and all of us. And he's exalted as king on high. The stories in the scriptures are for you and me to see that Jesus is everywhere. He is in everything. He is everything. So the point that God wants you and I to leave with is not anxiety, but hope. hope. You should, man, a Christian should have hope. You shouldn't get out of bed and think, oh man, this is what is life about? No, 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 no. He rose from the dead, family. He's living. And because he lives, you live too. See, that's hope. Now don't get me wrong, the world screams at you and me. And we have all kind of stuff going on and all kind of drama. I get that. But I want to propose you there is that there's hope that there's a glorious future ahead of us because what Jesus did on Calvary. That death has been defeated. And so guess what? I know that for some of us and many of us, we have past sins that haunt us. Things in your life where you're thinking, well, man, I hear you, Eric. And that, yeah, that's cool, man. But you don't understand. Like, I just love my sin. I just, I just want to do it, and I'm, I don't want to do it, but I want to do it. Man, I need someone to help me, and, I, and I've tried this before. I tried to walk real serious for two years, Eric, and, man, it didn't work out. I thought the people were corny, and I thought this and that, and, you know, you can have all of our excuses. And therefore, I don't know if this is for me. See, that's, that's talking as if it's not true. You follow me? Christianity is not competing. It's not an exercise that you can, it's not you can in and opt out of. You can, but you kind of, it's kind of silly because it's true. It was funny talking with these young brothers, man, uh, these Mormons, and at the end, we're putting the holes in all the arguments theologically and passionately, the brother said to me, and, just, and, and I'm just keeping it 100. When you, if you talk to a Mormon and you start putting holes in the theology, they'll always end by saying, hey, let me give you my testimony. My testimony is my testimony. T- testimony. You can't tell me nothing different. I really believe it. It just happened to me. That's all I know. I had this experience and it just, and that's all I know. I had this experience. Do you see how futile that is? See, Christianity, just don't get it twisted because you talk with individuals long enough, you start thinking that's how we are. No, 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 no. We have experiences that validates the facts of history. Do you understand the difference? 
We See, we have experiences, but guess what? The reality is, is people in historical scholarship, unbelievers and believers alike, are not arguing about the historicity of Christ. Now, we are arguing about, did he rise from the dead? Okay, we're arguing that. And we got to deal with probability there. And you got to have faith about that reality. But the personal work of Christ, what he proclaimed, what he did, that's a reality. Now, the question is, now, do you put your life on that reality or do you think you can get out of here on your own? That's a fair question. But what we're not doing is just saying we really hope we, you know, I just hope I'd be good enough and that God is gracious because the guy who said, no, no, no. We're saying this guy died on the cross and said he's dying for all the world's sin. And then we research and we realize, oh, my goodness, like people realize that he did all this stuff. So now you got to ask yourself, is it true? I bring it up to say to you guys that Christianity is founded in facts. And I feel sad for these brothers, when we, any of us, when we put our hope and our conscience in our emotions. I told the brother, I said, man, there are people who are dedicated and have great emotion and do horrible things all the time. I think brothers were absolutely convinced that they were doing the right thing when they were killing Jews in the Holocaust. They were deeply committed and totally doing something demonic. So it can't be just emotion. We have a lot of stuff that shows us our brokenness. You say, you tried and I'm here again. What do I do? And you're wanting to deal with experience. You're wanting to say, well, if I, only, if I don't have this experience and I can't pursue Christ, I, I got to keep, I want to try, try to, I want to propose you're thinking wrong. You're thinking it's about you. And I want to ask anyone in this room right now to, to say, I want to ask you to consider the fact that you can't do it on your own. That your sin does not define you. That God died for, for the grief, most grievous, horrible sin in this room. And that God wants to restore every one of us to himself. And that if you've done something over and over again, God is still that rich in mercy. And that's the beauty of the cross. Is God is trying to show you that he's a good God. That he does protect his people. He does love his people. He does empower his people. He does guide his people. Only if we would believe. All he's asking is believe. Believe. So a loving God and a faithful God is in control of circumstances. What he wants you to leave here with? And he wants you to have your own mission. He wants you to say, man, if that's true, tell the world about him. Tell the world about him. How can this be the God who saved you? And yet we don't go and be willing to lose our reputation, how people view us, our comfortability for the sake of our great king. So I just want to bring those two. In your daily life, God's going to give you ample opportunities this week, today, to model that you do trust and believe him. He's going to give you those opportunities. He's going to give you opportunities to say, and if you do as well, proclaim him. See, I'm convinced God is blessing our body. We're growing in discipleship. Praise God. We want you to be plugging in the community. But man, I can't wait. I'm believing God for the day when every, this, every seat is filled because we're preaching the gospel every week to hundreds of people and they get a chance to experience true life in Christ. Are you with me? Are we believing God for that? Be encouraged. So as I close, I just want to say, I am so thankful for the story to see in a narrative where God takes weak people and supernaturally does great things through them, protects his people, protects his reputation and uses a six-year-old girl and a scared mommy to help save redemptive history.
Praise God. Hey, we're going to um, have a time of tithe and offering and communion.